Thanks, everybody, for tuning in to another exciting episode of Movie Geeks United. We're going to review the January Blu-ray releases on this episode. And hopefully we'll have some time to release some, you know, other kinds of episodes throughout the month because we've been a little behind lately on content. But Adam is ever ready with his Blu-ray <laughs> review. He, we can always count on Adam. <laughs> well, I hope to. We hope to have some anniversary shows coming up too. I'm I'm in the process. I've talked to a couple of people, so hopefully, a few things will pan out, and we'll have some nice surprises there down the line too. Yeah. So, uh, as as we generally uh, have been prone to do. <laughs> I've got I've got interviews I've never aired. I got to go through those and go ahead and air them. Yeah, you never aired the uh, the Diane Cannon one, did you? Not in not know. in total. I, I aired one part where uh, she talked about Rebecca Schaefer. I aired that on our YouTube channel. Yeah, because I remember you saying that was a good experience, from what I uh, recall. Or I think you said that. Not really. It was a little floundering. Oh, okay. <laughs> because oh. I was interviewing her about author, author. Right. Uh, and there was just so much that she had to say about it. You know, this person oh, okay. was nice. This person was nice, and. In terms of specific questions that elicited more detailed responses, I, I, I failed in that interview. But we did talk about some other things. Mm-hmm. Like I genuinely asked her, uh, you know, how is it that you're all, you always radiate positivity? It's like you seem to be, a, you know, if you think back on her performances and that laugh, and she always seems so alive. And, yeah, so we went into some other areas. But the main topic wasn't... Um, very fruitful you know oh that's too bad i, I mean had, what are you going to say about arthur arthur she said you know she was originally going to do the um tuesday weld part huh, you know really yeah which is totally wrong because she's she's just like i said she's kind of this vivacious presence and the tuesday weld role was a role that was kind of shaken by a bad marriage you know it's something more somber yeah sure author author but any yeah. any chance I have to play that milk and cookies song, yeah, you know, from author <laughs> author, <laughs> I yeah. should I should play Diacanid just so I could play that uh, song again. I know I was uh, I was wondering uh, if she had a uh, uh, any thoughts on that that wonderful theme song. So yeah, <laughs> listen to my next question. Yeah, I think there are some movie geek yearbook interviews that I haven't posted yet, and there's about three hours of interviews about George Reeves, the death of George mm-hmm. Reeves that. I just need to put together. Oh well. I'll get there we go. I'm just Every I'm writing a book, man. So it's it takes a lot of my time. Yeah, it it indeed it does. Yes, and it is admirable what you are doing when you are not editing the show. So there you go. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure it'll cure world hunger. The book that I'm writing on right now. <laughs> well, it'll. Uh... It'll 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 hold our attention if nothing else. I can guarantee you that. So, oh uh, yeah. Well, anyway, well we'll start out with January fifth. We usually go to the first week in the month. So how about the Criterion Collection adding three films by Louis Boonwall to their roster of Blu-ray titles? And uh, these are the three final films of Louis Boonwall. The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie, which won the Oscar in 1973 for Best Foreign Film of 1972. That Obscure Object of Desire and The Phantom of Liberty. And uh, those three films have been packaged here. Individually uh, or together? 
Well, they, well, I think they are individually as well, but also in a slipcase box that includes some pretty impressive extras. You have the Castaway of Providence Street, a 1971 homage to Boonwall, made by friends and fellow filmmakers, and a documentary on his life called Speaking of Boonwall uh, from 2000. And uh, there's a television program about the making of Discreet Charm, the Bourgeoisie, and all kinds of interviews here, archival interviews with some of the stars, uh, the actors, uh, key collaborators, uh, 1985 documentary, just uh, lots and lots of extras here with nice essay booklets. Uh, so, you know, it's, uh, it's a nice package for fans of these films. Um, I did revisit this discreet charm of the bourgeoisie as uh, we've discussed off the air and uh, my experience with it this time was not the most pleasant I just didn't really um, I don't I don't know I uh, just didn't really connect with it I, and I didn't remember connecting with it all that much earlier and I thought well maybe I missed something and I, I still don't I still seem to be missing something but I know there are huge uh, fans of this film, and I know it has been hugely influential in so many ways. So who am I to say? Well, uh, its but, uh, its charms are discreet. <laughs> For me, they are. For me, they are. Maybe but, the elusive charm of the bourgeoisie. But uh, yes, these uh, they do. Uh, it does look great. I mean, if you're a fan, you got to have this uh, because it is terrific transfer. So I will say that I'll go on record as saying that. But you know, um, as far as the the merits of the film, uh, I guess it's an acquired taste. So we'll say the 1984 film Savage Streets, starring oh, Linda yeah. Blair. Yes, that has been issued by Code Red, which is distributed by Kino. I can see that poster in my head. She's wearing yes. like lev- leather or something. That's correct. Yeah. yeah, she said she's an avenging angel, I guess you would say, on the... Uh, on the, on the, uh, and that theme was big back in the day. The whole, like, uh, I'm going to clean up New York and uh, I'm going to be this, uh, what do they call it? The uh, the other word for avenging angel. Vigilante. Vigilante, yeah. <laughs> that was uh, big. And you yeah, think back think about that... the, um, God, my mind, where's it going? The uh, Hell's Angels. Yes, yeah. yes. Yes, there's the, um, uh, I think it kind of kicked off or kicked into high gear. I'm sure there were a few before this, but the one I remember being one of the first was Mrs. 45. Uh, directed by Abel Ferrara from 1981. I remember that one playing on cable, and that's that's pretty effective. Yeah. That's pretty well done. Uh, now, now, I know you used to be a soundtrack collector. I'm sure you must have seen this soundtrack album pop up because I remember seeing it quite a bit. For Savage Streets? <laughs> yes. Yeah, I think so. I don't yeah. know if I have it. I have so many soundtracks that, you know, on vinyl. Yeah. I, I don't know if I have it or not, but it's recognizable to me. Yes. What's the best vigilante movie? Good gracious, that's a good uh, that's a good question. I mean, the original Death Wish I think is still pretty good. The sequels, uh, you know, we'll leave those alone. But the original is is pretty good. Of course, um, I don't know. I, I'm not sure if you'd lump uh, Dirty Harry into that. Uh, I mean, he's a cop, but he's yeah, <laughs> not but, playing but, by the books. Could, but could you categorize Taxi Driver as a vigilante movie? Yeah. I would say so. Sure. That's a great one. Which yes. if you categorize that as a vigilante movie, then that's got to be the best one. Oh, yeah. That's, <laughs> I mean, that's tell me something that's better yes. than Taxi Driver. 
No, there's nothing better than that. You're right when it comes to that genre. So yeah, I can't I can't argue with that. I wasn't thinking in those terms, but yeah, that's that's correct. But yeah, that's a that's an interesting. Uh, well, there's obviously Vigilante with Robert Forster, which I think is a mm. title that we may be. If we didn't talk, I can't remember if we if that was last month or it may be coming up this month. But anyway, that's been issued recently by Blue Underground, and uh, I know that's one that's that's pretty obvious, blatantly advertising it. But <laughs> you got that Jodie Foster one, the the brave one. Yes, that's uh, another one. Death sentence from the writer of Death Wish. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I remember he actually came on the writer of Death Wish when Death Sentence came out. Oh really? That what was that guy's name? Uh, Garfield, Brian Garfield. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and of course you have um, I spit on your grave. I mean, obviously. Oh that's yeah. A... <laughs> yeah, the most delightful man, the director of that movie, Mirzarki. Yeah. I mean, I was like, God, I don't want to do this interview. This is gonna be awful. And he was so delightful. <laughs> like the complete opposite of what you would expect for the maker of I Spit on Your Grave. Well, you know, that's weird because that's usually the way it turns out. It's usually the the people who make these very dark films turn out to be such charming people in real life. It's almost like they're exercising their demons through their art or something he emailed me after the interview he said my wife has a crush on your voice and I was like oh <laughs> thank you oh that's great well, I don't want to do anything with her because she, she, you or she might kill me but, uh, but thank you <laughs> she might spit on my grave right <laughs> yeah mm. well uh, yeah Savage Streets in case anybody it's the one uh, where she sets out to avenge her mute deaf sister uh, and it's of course, um, you know, takes place. It's a shot in '80s Los Angeles. So uh-huh. That's all. It's fun. So she and doesn't it, go after Rick James in this one. It's a no, di- totally different that, vigilante. Yeah, uh, different one. Situation. Yes, she's got. Uh, she's going up against John Vernon in, in this one. Mm. So, yeah, and uh, Linnea Quigley, you know, uh, '80s horror uh, star who turned up in quite a few things. She's in this as well, but. Anyway, we'll move on to does it the got, Does it got like the good the good 80s pop stuff in it? Like, is there? Oh a... yeah, it's, it, that's what that soundtrack is. It's that cheesy that's so synthesizer. That's so yeah, great. It's fun. It's it's a fun soundtrack. If anybody, uh, I'm sure you can find it. Probably some tracks from it on YouTube or something. I'm sure because uh, it was pretty prevalent. I even I, you know, this is how geeky I am. I even remember the label it was on. It was on MCA, which is crazy. I don't know why I remember that, but. The, Huh. She, yeah. she won a Razzie for Worst Actress for this For movie. that film? Really? I think so, yeah. Wow. Huh. Interesting. Yeah, well, you never can tell. Well, uh, The Man Who Would Be King, directed by John Huston and starring Sean, the late, recently deceased Sean Connery, Michael Caine, Christopher Plummer, uh... That was from 1975, of course, has been previously issued by Warner proper, but it had gone out of print. So Warner Archive stepped up and reissued it. It's now back in print. So anybody who's uh, who um, wanted a copy of that but didn't get it the last time out. And Might be the most beloved non-Bond Connery movie. I think you're right. Yeah. I would say so. Oh, sorry. Yep. 
at least the one where he was lead. I mean, you know, uh, the, I'm sure the Untouchables has its, its fans, but he's not the lead there. So I uh, yeah. But people talk about the man that who would be king as some kind of. I mean, they their eyes kind of light up. Oh yeah, yeah. It's 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 very well. It's very beloved. Let's just say that uh, more so than Zardoz. <laughs> But not more than the outfit he wore in Zardoz. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Oh, yeah. That's something else. That's a whole other uh, topic for a discussion. But anyway, we have another one of those. Uh, and this one's from Kino. Uh, actually, Scorpion releasing, distributed by Kino, Tin- Tintorera, the Tiger Shark, which is one of these Italian films. And the uh, I think it's similar to Tentacles. It came out the same year. Rene Cardona Jr. directed. <laughs> uh, it has uh, Susan George and Fiona Lewis in the cast, and uh, it's obviously about a uh, a tiger shark that's uh, you know terrorizing the Mexican East Coast. Wow! And you know this was obviously one of those attempts to cash in on the success of Jaws. Yeah, that's pretty obvious. But uh, yeah, 1977. Those uh those Italian. Films are now in this case, I think it's a Mexican uh, production because mm. I think Rene Cordona he uh, directed the uh, the first version of the story that became Alive, the one about the uh, the plane crash where the oh. the, the uh, survivors. There was an earlier version of that in '76, and Rene Cordona directed that. So that yeah, this would be a Mexican. Yeah, the American version that was the directorial. No, it wasn't. Arachnophobia was the directorial debut of Frank Marshall, and I guess yeah, Al- was Alive was the follow up. Yeah. Yes, it was. Yeah. I love, let me tell you, I love the score for Tentacles. And it's yeah, uh, I do too. <laughs> it's so wacky and there's that there's that element of some of the pieces where it sounds like it's underwater. Uh-huh. Uh and uh, you know, I I play the soundtrack all the time. Never seen the movie. I I'm not opposed <laughs> to seeing the movie. It's it's just not something that's readily available, really. I saw it uh I think when it made its television debut it was uh on network television about a year after it came out because it came out and came in theaters and and came and went quickly in theaters and then it uh, NBC ran it about a year later and I saw it I kind of dug it then but you got to remember I was about 7 years old so right. I, I don't I'm, I I'm think probably... that movie was so bad it went straight to audio I think <laughs> you're probably right but uh, I probably I probably would find it atrocious now. But, but it's uh, a curiosity because it's one of those. It's uh, is it Italian? Is it? It is. Yeah, it's an and, Italian production with American actors. Yeah, it's really with the, the giant American actors. I mean, you got John Huston heading up that thing. Yeah, and if and if memory serves me correct, and I, and it was a weird thing going on back in the seventies. You probably remember uh, they did this with Beyond the Door, where they would have English speaking actors speaking in Italian. Uh, and then they would dub them back into English, or have them, du- and their mouths don't match up. I, I don't, I, I never could understand what the logic was, because obviously hmm. they were shooting the films in a foreign language and then dubbing their own lines back into English, because their their lips are definitely out of sync, and they're they're obviously mouthing different words, so you can tell that they're. It's a really weird thing, and I think Tentacles did that same thing, which I don't. Yeah, I'm that's not strange. Sure. But you have that, to, you have to imagine that it was probably. Oh, free trip to Italy? Good. I'll I'll do the movie. Sure. It's probably yeah, one of those exactly. things. <laughs> yeah, Michael Caine's famous for doing that sort of thing. Yeah, to the point where he uh, missed the Oscars in when he won his Oscar for Hannah and her sisters because he was in the Bahamas, uh, kicking it in the Bahamas, shooting uh, Jaws: The Revenge. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Well, 
The Train from 1964, starring Burt Lancaster, a terrific John Frankenheimer film. Uh, I'm a big fan of this one. It's the one where he's trying to recover all of the uh, precious artwork that's been stolen by the Nazis. And uh, incredible stunt action set pieces in this film, obviously done with, uh, you know, practically. Well, that's the same. Uh, that's the same true life premise as the monuments, Ben. That Clooney flop, isn't it? Yeah, but it's a whole lot better than yeah, Monuments, that's, yeah. man. <laughs> yeah, it's good. It's very good, especially if you love those Frankenheimer action films that he was cranking out in the early 60s, you know, around the time he did Manchurian Candidate and uh, Seven Days in May. This is right up there with those. Mm. Uh, it's it's very, very well done. Uh, but it had previously been issued by Twilight Time. Uh, obviously, is out of print now with Twilight Time. Well, they had folded, but now they're coming back, with the, and we'll get to that here in just a bit. But uh, the train has been reissued by Kino. Uh, I think it's probably the same transfer, and I think there's a new audio commentary on it, maybe. Uh, but anyway, some other Kino releases that we'll talk about real quickly are Captain Newman, M.D., starring Craig Gregory Peck and Tony Curtis. And this is notable, also Angie Dickinson in this. Also, But it's notable because uh, Bobby Darren was uh, an Oscar nominee for Best Supporting Actor for this film. And I think that was maybe his only Oscar nomination as an actor, but uh, when his brief acting career. But um, yeah, he was he was doing it all, kicking out, uh, pumping out those hit singles and uh, TV specials, and uh, and he was also able to get an Oscar nomination with Captain Newman, M.D. And this has a new audio commentary. In fact, I have the review copy right in front of me here. It has an audio commentary by Sam Deegan and the theatrical trailer. So uh, and it's directed by David Miller, who um, who also directed uh, Midnight Lace, Lonely or the Brave, Executive Action, which was the first film to take a look at the JFK assassination. But he also directed Sudden Fear, which ironically is another title that we're going to be discussing. Uh, also released by Kino, uh, they sent that one to that one actually came out in December, but I didn't get a review copy of it until this month. They were a little delayed on that, but this is a. Uh, this was supposedly one of Francois Truffaut's favorite uh, suspense films from that period, one of his favorite noir films. Uh, he called it a masterpiece of cinema. And it's uh, basically Joan Crawford, and she finds out that her husband, Jack Palance, isn't the man she thought he was. And so she she um, is a successful playwright, and so she kicks up a uh, – concocts a scheme to, to get him back for the uh, – bad deeds that he's done to her but anyway it had four academy award nominations but anyway uh sudden fear from 1952 and captain newman md both directed by david miller and both issued by kino so sudden fear yeah what year is sudden fear 1952 like i said uh, it's joan crawford yes yes that's that's one of my favorite film noirs is it really yeah it really is uh that's a deeply enjoyable great looking movie so uh, I would be interested in seeing a, a sterling transfer of it. I love that movie. It's a new 2K restoration. Now, they did not release it on Blu-ray. It is only um, it is only DVD, but it is a new 2K restoration and supposedly looks really nice, even uh, even though it's only on DVD. Um, but, yeah, Kino has issued both of those films from director David Miller. I wonder why uh, you issue something on DVD. I don't know. Uh, Paramount has been doing a lot of that here lately with their newer titles, the ones that are, you know, uh, that they got a licensing deal with Netflix, you know, and a lot of their original films because of the COVID pandemic have been going straight to Netflix. 
and those are coming out on physical media, but they're not putting them out on uh, Blu-ray. Not many of them. <laughs> yeah, so, it's a uh, yeah. Sudden fear is great. I mean, Joan Crawford wants to seek revenge on him, and then it cuts to Jack Palance preparing for her by doing one-armed push-ups. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Well, I am uh, that, that I haven't gotten around to watching it yet, but both of those actually, Captain Newman and Sudden Fury, are on my the top of my list here. Um, the Secret War of Harry Frigg, starring Paul Newman and directed by Jack Smite. That's another Kino release. This one features an audio commentary by film historian Daniel Creamer and uh, our old buddy Nat Segaloff. I like both of them. Both of them were on our Movie Geek Yearbook series. Yeah. They've been doing a they've been doing a lot of commentary work lately. Yes, yes, they have, and uh, and as they should, they're very knowledgeable, both of them. Uh, theatrical trailers included here as well, and um, you know, it's uh, this is a uh, one that I've never seen, I must say, but uh, it's a World War II satire, um, beautifully shot in CinemaScope, I might add, by the great Russell Meddy, who shot Spartacus as well. So, and uh, you have a Interesting supporting cast here, which includes Tom Bosley, Norman Fell, and Buck Henry. So uh, there you go, The Secret War of Harry Frigg, another Kino release from them. A Rough Night in Jericho, Beach Red, and The Black Gestapo. Those are some more uh, Kino releases. The Black Gestapo from 1975. And the other two titles that I mentioned – ooh, I just lost my – Connection. It just came back. A Rough Night in Jericho is from 1967 and stars George Pappard and Dean Martin and Gene Simmons. And Beach Red stars Cornell Wilde. And Texas Across the River is one more of their releases starring Dean Martin and um, Frederick Forsyth. I think that's no, Rosemary Forsyth. Sorry. Uh, so anyway. You know uh, how some people complain that Netflix or companies like that but particularly netflix they don't release the numbers like how do we know how well something's doing and because we're used to box office being a sport or the number of eyes on something being a sport i never bought into that i think it's i don't see any reason why we should know how popular something is but um what about the the niche companies that we talk about every month that release these obscure 60 year old movies I, I am kind of curious. Are these selling? I mean, how many people on average buy these? I know. I, I'm curious about that as well, which which brings us to another topic. I, I read an article since we did our last show, and they said that there was a 25% drop in physical media sales from 2019 to 2020, which is uh, – it's been steadily decreasing each year, but that was the biggest drop, I think, in the last 10 years, which is really odd uh, when you consider that you know, more people are indoors, and you would think that it might have a little, little bit of an uptick, but uh, not not the case. Um, I, I, I know. I wonder about that too. There have been several, you know, boutique labels that have folded, you know, that uh, or or, ha- or really aren't doing a lot. Uh, I think all of films they're still out there, but they're not pumping out a lot of titles. They're doing maybe one every three or four months, and of course, Twilight Time had folded, but they're trying to restart that and. Um, yeah, so it's a, it's a uh, it's an interesting question. I would like to know how many units some of these titles are are selling. You know, I, obviously when you have things like the uh, the Friday the Thirteenth box, that's probably enough to keep a company. I would assume like uh, Scream and Shout Factory going for a while. But um, yeah, you would hope. 
But I'm wondering yeah, you what the, so. you know what the cap is like. Some of these t- titles you're talking about, which doesn't make the, I'm not saying that they're not worthy of being issued. I'm just wondering the interest across the country, and they would have those numbers. Do they cap it off at five hundred, a thousand, five thousand? Uh, you know, I I don't know. Uh, but obviously, yeah. you know, Friday the Thirteenth box set's gonna sell because the horror is, you know, you can cannibalize that audience forever. But uh, you know, there are some. I guess it's a well-run company because they keep dishing them out every month. But you know, there are some companies that have like four best picture winners in a row and they go under. <laughs> yes. You know, yes not, uh, I mean, right. movie, movie studio companies. So I'm sure that there are some badly run uh, video distributors as well. Mm-hmm. It does make you wonder. It really does. And uh, I, I, that's a question I'd like to know more. Uh, I'd, I'd like to be able to answer that a little more thoroughly because I really don't know. I mean, you know, obviously COVID has impacted some of the, uh, some of the uh, distributors more more than others. Some are just uh, Aquino is amazing to me. They just never missed a beat. They kept releasing product, uh, basically just never stopped. And then yeah. Shout and Stream Factory basically have no major catalog titles uh, of note during the first quarter of 2021 at all. Mm. Uh, they say they're coming back in 20 uh, the second quarter. Uh, they have said that they're get, they've got some stuff coming down the pike, but they haven't said what, and that remains to be seen. And they said it's a result of COVID. So I, I, I think that has really disrupted their – and they were really pumping out a lot of things too, if you remember, at the end of 2019 and early uh, 2020 before this all came through and changed everything. So well, I, I, I don't you know. You know, it's, it's not just uh... – it's not just preserving the movies and and transferring them onto the format. It's, you know, you got people responsible for packaging and shipping and all. It's yes. it requires an operation of people. Yeah, it really does. I I'm just amazed at at how some of them have adapted and they've been able to continue. And, and there's the producing of extras, you know, which yeah. normally uh, under normal circumstances you would have them. You know, basically filming in person with these interview subjects, and now they're having to do the the interviews uh, via Zoom or Skype or whatever they have to do them with. You know, and and and, and you know, I'm, I'm so glad that they that we have this technology. They're able to to keep doing that sort of thing. You know, so yeah, it's uh, interesting how how we're going to see the impacts of this in the next year or two. I mean, I'm watching that Showtime series Your Honor with Brian Cranston, mm-hmm. and so. Um, Seven inter- seven episodes, you know. There's no sign of a virus, but the eighth episode, they you can see them wearing masks, and you can interesting. Yeah, you can tell the difference between pre-shutdown and 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 post, and when they come back because they're in the courtroom, and all of a sudden we're seeing masks, and they act, they're actually smart enough to use the virus as a major plot point in this episode. But then in the very next scene. There's seven people sitting at a restaurant eating together. So that mm. was obviously shot before, you know. Yeah. So it's it's interesting to see how they juggle that. Oh, yeah. Well, I will mention this title uh, released on January 8th. This is a curio. Grizzly 2 Revenge. Yeah. Now, you, <laughs> you probably know about the story about this that, one. That got a write-up in the New York Times. <laughs> it surely did. Yes. Uh, which was pretty – it goes to show you how uh, starved for product, speaking of COVID, that these, uh, these news publications are. Because in a normal day and time, 
there was no way that Grizzly Two Revenge would have been mentioned in uh, <laughs> in in the New York Times, and yet it was. It's an interesting story. I think the story behind this film is is more interesting than the film itself, probably. probably but you know, so. Grizzly was one. I think before <laughs> Halloween, Grizzly was the biggest grossing independently made film. Uh, up until Halloween came along and broke that record, you know, mm. and uh, and it was, uh, it was made on a minuscule budget, I think a half a million dollars maybe, and it grossed, uh, I don't know, thirty some million or something like that. It was, uh, it yeah, was obviously. I, I've seen Grizzly. Film. Have you seen Grizzly? Yeah, I have it. I have it on Blu-ray, and and it's a it's a guilty pleasure. It has its moments, and uh, it was kind of uh, one of my favorites as a kid, and it's still you know still not terrible. Um, you know, it's uh, directed by William Girdler, who also obviously had uh, he had made quite a few horror films. He made the ex- the Black Exorcist ripoff, the Black Exploitation Exorcist ripoff, Abbey, in '74. So mm. he was no stranger to making ripoffs, and this was a ripoff, obviously, of uh, of Jaws, trying to capture that. Abbey's that also Abbey's also got a cult following. Yeah, it does. But what doesn't yeah. really? <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it kind of, sort of, I mean, it, it pops up in conversations from time to time. It was banned by Warner Brothers. That's why you don't, uh, because they took them to court because uh, of the similarities. And uh, it is basically, I mean, there is a version of it that's floating around out there. But uh, it, it, they basically did a cease and desist thing on it is yeah. what happened in 74. And yeah, that's, that's all you need to do to, to achieve a level of infamy. Those producers are like, please ban me. That means that our movie will be around for a lot longer. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's true. But William Girdler was an interesting director because he he pumped out, I think, eight titles in about six years, and then he was killed tragically scouting locations for a movie right before his final film, The Manitou, was released. So he was one of those directors who everybody was curious. He was only 30 years old. So he really – yeah, he's – but anyway, he made the original Grizzly, so he had nothing to do with the second one. Anyway, the the story goes that Edward Montoro, the producer of the second – the first and second Grizzly film, basically ran off with the the money for the financing of the film uh, about three-quarters of of the way through the production of the film – and so they never got to finish it until now. And how they finished it, I'm not sure. But uh, the the cast is what makes it interesting. Is it has George Clooney, Laura Dern, Charlie Sheen, Louise Fletcher, John Rice Davies, and Steve Inwood. I'm not sure how they got any of these people. <laughs> and most <laughs> of them, I think, are killed off in the first scene. Probably so. Yeah, it's probably one of those things like that Texas Chainsaw Massacre film that had. Uh, uh, that had Matthew McConaughey and Renee Zellweger, if you yeah. recall that story. <laughs> the only movie I ever walked out on in the theater. Yeah, was... uh, awful movie. Really? But, but I always appreciated the fact that uh, that McConaughey has always been like, oh gosh, I had a great time making that movie. That was a good hang. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a good hang. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, this well, anyway. William Girdler guy was killed in a, 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 a helicopter accident or something yes. in Manila? Yeah, he's scouting, scouting locations, yes. Wow. Uh, yeah, and he has an in- interesting filmography. If you go back and look what he did, he did a uh, film with um, uh, Pam Greer, Sheba Baby. Mm-hmm. Uh, he directed that as well, and then he did um, – oh, I can't, I can't remember what all. But any, I, I, again, The Manitou is another guilty pleasure of mine too. It's uh, – it gets really goofy during the last half hour of that film, but uh, but the first 
I'd say 40 minutes or so were incredibly gripping. It was very really? well, very creepy. Here's, yeah, what his, dog... here's what his website says about it. The Manitou yeah. also marks Girdler's first role as a solo film producer, but his tragic death on January 21st, 1978, prevented him from seeing his masterpiece hit the big screen. <laughs> masterpiece. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my goodness! Yeah, it it has to be seen during its it's one of these uh, during the last half half hour. It gets so goofy and ridiculous that I, uh, me trying to describe it is not going to do it any justice. But it's the essential plot of the film is that it's uh, it's an ancient Indian medicine man who's been reincarnated inside this woman, and she notices this tumor that's growing out of the back of her neck, and it just keeps getting bigger and bigger. And I remember running that film for my my daughter when she was fairly young because she loved horror films. She was so disturbed by it, she said, turn it off. I can't do it. I can't huh. do it because huh. she was so disturbed by, like, the first half hour of it because it, it is very creepy when this uh, Indian medicine man, uh, basically, she gives birth to it. And it's the way it's done and staged, it's it's uh, it's pretty effective. But then the movie kind of goes off the rails. So, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Anyway, yeah, he's, uh, he's one of those names that people don't talk about. But he – for a guy who was only 30 years old and had about eight – credits under his belt it was pretty impressive yeah yeah so um anyway sad loss so um mill creek has continued their trend of reissuing a lot of these uh, 80s and 90s films with the retro vhs covers that they do uh-huh. they've done uh, several here blind fury the freshman uh, blind Cross fury Foods. the the rudger howard cor- yes. uh, martial arts thing yeah it's the one 1989 the Freshman, obviously, uh, Andrew Bergman, Marlon Brando starring in Matthew Broderick, Crossroads from 86, and mm-hmm. Like Father, Like Son from 87. God, Dud- that's the Dud- uh, Dudley Moore, Kirk Cameron. Yep, that's okay. the one. Yeah. That Crossroads, is- there, was a, there was a Cinemax staple back in the day. <laughs> yes, it was. Ralph yeah. Macchio was a blues man. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, now that's what I want to see. You know, there's Cobra Kai. They 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 resurrect it. Why don't they bring back Crossroads yeah. as a uh, damn that Spielberg like, something? He can make you believe anything. Yeah, no. <laughs> no, Spielberg had nothing to do with Crossroads. Yeah, but that's a funny. Uh, I liked that movie when I was a kid. You know. Yeah, it's it's good in its own way. Isn't that a Walter Hill? Didn't he direct yeah. that? I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And Joe yeah, Seneca's awesome. Joe Seneca's pretty good in it. And uh, yes, Jamie Gertz plays the love interest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, uh, pretty good score by Rye Cooter. Yeah, what I remember. So it's a great name. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. It's just it's just too good to believe. <laughs> we can't make this stuff up. It's true. Yeah. Well, anyway, uh, so we'll move on to another Kino title. Boy, they're really pumping them out, as I said they normally do. Uh, the 1990 made-for-television film, and this is a beloved television film by a lot of people, and the directorial debut for Frank Darabont, of course, who went on to do uh, Green Mile and Shawshank Redemption. This is uh, Buried Alive I'm talking about, mm. starring Tim Matheson, Jennifer Jason Lee, William Atherton, and Hoyt Axton. Hoyt Axton. Yes. <laughs> the great Hoyt Axton. Mm. Uh, whom, when I was watching this, I was rewatching this. hadn't seen it since it was originally broadcast, and rewatching it. And he's he was literally a year older than I am right now, and he looks to be at least twenty years older than wow. I. Am. By the way, little known fact: you spend too much time in the company of Hoyt Axton, you might get Ry Cooter. 
Well, well you know, I was seeing something about Darebont, a Facebook friend posted that he used to act in movies. And they posted a screenshot of... Um, Did not know that. God, what is the Stephen King movie that he... He's at a gas pump or something. Oh, no, it's a John Carpenter movie. John Carpenter Vampires. Oh, yes, 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 yes. And Frank Darabont plays a little role in it. I did not. I saw that not too long ago and just didn't catch him. Yeah, I, I, hope, have, I'm, I hope I'm right. Maybe I'm spreading lies. But... Probably. Because it doesn't list him as an actor in his uh, biography. Hang on. Let me yeah. see. Let me see. Oh, I don't know. It would take too long. Just, just trust me on this. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's an interesting curio, if nothing else. What year was Vampires? 98. It was in between uh, Green Mile and yeah. Shawshank. He plays the man with Buick. <laughs> How could well, you forget he's... that role, man? Oh, yeah. <laughs> How could you? Well, he's pretty tight with Carpenter, so uh, it might have been a favor you know, to John Carpenter. You know, Maybe maybe somebody was, else was supposed to play the part, and they just didn't show up and called him and, hey, can I ask you for a favor? That kind of thing. You know, I've become, I've come I've always liked John Carpenter in general, even though he's made his fair share of shitty movies. But um, uh, he's really kind of like an invaluable director. Just if you if you like uh, Southern California, mm-hmm. I mean, his movies and his a lot of his locations are still around, so you can visit all those locations from his different movies. He's one of those dominant California filmmakers, I think. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yes, yes, he he certainly was, and uh, and knew how to use those locations to maximum effect, I would say. So um, yeah, I think so. And the steely, like the uh, lens flares and the the headlights, where it would the the, the the I don't know the the ghosting of the light would spread across the screen, like that was a visual motif he has in every single movie he does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's true. He was. Very, uh, very adept at that sort of thing. Yeah, but well, anyway, back to Buried Alive, directed by Frank Darabont. I was going to say it has an audio commentary by entertainment journalist and author Brian Reisman, an interview with actor William Atherton, mm. and there's a, a nice slipcase here with newly commissioned art by Vince Evans and trailers. So anyway, uh, you know, it's it's an interesting little TV movie. It's it's definitely above. It has a TV movie look. So you can definitely tell it was it was made for television because they have the, those movies have that certain look you know and this one does it doesn't look exactly what you would call cinematic but it's a nifty little thriller you know Tim Matheson's uh, married Jennifer Jason Lee and uh, she's cheating on him with William Atherton and they come up with a plot to get rid of him of course it everything uh, nothing goes exactly as planned and he has his, Tim Matheson comes up with his own little tricks to outsmart him and. Uh, make it backfire on them, and uh, I don't want to say too much more about it, but it's it's a it's a fun little movie if you haven't seen Buried Alive. Atherton, he's interesting. I think I yeah. interviewed him a long time ago for some kind of Girl Next Door, some kind of grisly horror movie. Mm-hmm. But uh, I'm looking at his resume now, and I just rewatched the Sugarland Express a few weeks ago and enjoyed it a lot. Oh, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, that's one of his first movies. Then the New Centurions, I think, is his first. Mm-hmm. That was Stacy Keach and George C. Scott and The Day of the Locust. Oh, I'm a huge fan of that. Uh, looking for that's... Mr. Goodbar in 77. That's and, right. He's and then he he disappears for seven years before he does Ghostbusters in 84. I wonder what happened there. That's a good question. Hmm, let's give him a call. Hang on. Let me call him right now. 
<laughs> hey, we were talking about you, and uh, we'd Mr. like Mr. Atherton, we'd like to ask you a question. Who the fuck are you? How'd you get this <laughs> <No>. number? <laughs> what were you doing during those seven years? How do you account for your time? Yeah, that would uh, that that would be very interesting to know. But yeah, he was he was such a uh, a, a um, uh, common face for a period during oh, the seventies. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I love. I think uh, Day of the Locust. He's perfectly cast. If you, I don't know how many people have read the actual novel by Nathaniel West that it's based on. But if you read that novel and you think and the character that he plays in the movie, it's when you when you're reading it, you're like, yeah, that's perfect casting. Yeah. He's, uh, and it is a big boo. Um, die Hard. Yes. You know, uh, he, and and now I guess for a career like his, he, he's had he has a second career just doing retrospectives on all of the movies that he did years ago. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's his constant employment. But I see on his biography it says he is in an untitled John Schlesinger documentary that's released in 2022. Mm, now that I'd be uh, curious to see. I'm sure he's in there talking about Day of the Locust. That's got to be what that's about. Yeah. So they're making a doc on Schle- <laughs> Schlesinger. Yeah. You know, Day, Day of the Locust is funny because that character played by Donald Sutherland, his name is Homer Simpson, you know. And uh, and I think Matt Groening has finally admitted at some point that, yeah, that, that, that he got the name from, mm. from Day of the Locust for Homer. Here's something else interesting that, you know, I've seen this movie ten times. And I yeah. didn't pick up on it in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Uh-huh. So he's talking to DiCaprio. Pacino's talking to DiCaprio about his movie, The Fourteen Fists of McCluskey. Mm-hmm. And that's an Easter egg because in The Godfather, Sterling Hayden punched Al Pacino, broke his jaw. Right. Sterling Hayden. Yeah. Captain McCluskey. I feel like a moron. I, I didn't even put that together. <laughs> I didn't think about it either. That's great, though. The 14 fists of... <laughs> yeah, it's cool. That's great. That's good. That's that's a nice reference. I, I, I should have put that together as well, but I didn't either. So, uh, so you're not alone. Good, good. Anyway. Oh, well, so Minding the Gap from 20, uh, 2018, 2018, that's a Criterion release. Uh, that got a lot of critical love in the year of its release and has been... Issued now in a uh, uh, with the uh, Criterion Special Edition treatment. Never got around to seeing Minding the Gap. It's about these uh, three young men banding, uh, bonding together to escape volatile families in their Rust Belt hometown, hmm. and they uh, bond over a love of skateboarding. I think is what it is at the center of the film. Well, uh, Film Movement has issued a box set, and, th- and they were a little late getting this to me as well. I think this has been out since November. But it's uh, it's from Ealing Studios, which is a British uh, studio, uh, and they uh, pumped out a lot of comedies in the 40s and 50s. And it's a box set, a collection of four of the comedies from Ealing Studios. Whiskey Galore, Passport to Pimlico, The Tip. Filled Thunderbolt and Maggie. Oh, the what? I'm and, sorry. Uh, say that next to the last one again. Titfield Thunderbolt. Okay. <laughs> 1953. Passport to Pimlico, 1949. Whiskey Galore, 1948. The Maggie, 1954. These have all been restored, new, new restorations. And uh, they're, uh, they say Ealing Studios defined the golden age of British film comedy in the 40s and 50s. And these, uh, one of these, I forget which one it is, is directed by Charles Crichton, who went on to later do uh, Fish Called Wanda. Mm. Uh, so one of these films is directed by him. 
Uh, I think um, the Titfield Thunderbolt was shot by Douglas Slocomb, who would later go on to shoot uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, among many other things. So, uh, anyway, uh, if you're a fan of uh, the Ealing Studios comedy, British comedies, a film movement has issued this box set with four of them, for those who... uh, who, who are curious about that sort of thing. And the uh, the se- season two of uh, The Twilight Zone has been issued, the uh, the one uh, that uh, is from executive producers Jordan Peele and Simon Kinberg. And, of course, we were there at the launch of that out in Hollywood. Oh, that Twilight Zone, yeah. Yeah, that Twilight Zone, yeah. This is uh, the second season has materialized. And uh, I didn't know if it was going to make it for a second, but I guess they've had enough success with it. They went on and... So this contains all the episodes from the second season and mm. has been issued. So uh, a couple more Kino titles here. Uh, Just Before Dawn from 1981 has been issued with two cuts, uh, a longer extended cut of the film and the original theatrical cut. This is directed by Jeff Lieberman, who also made Squirm and Blue... Uh, what is that? I'm trying to think. Blue Sunshine, that's the name of the film. Yeah, his earlier two. And this one has its fans. George Kennedy is in this. Chris Lemon, yes, the son of Jack Lemon, is in this as well. And it's a bunch of hikers being stalked by a, a killer on the hiking trail, and they have to outwit him and all that. But uh, I remember seeing this on uh, local television stations back in the day, and I haven't seen it probably in 35 years at least. Mm. But anyway, just before dawn from 1981, a, a horror film with a with a cult following of sorts. Thursday from 1998 and The Devil's Wedding Night from 1973, both of those Kino releases as well, as well as Rituals from 1973, which stars Hal Holbrook. And this is kind of like a a reworking of the themes of uh, deliverance, kind of like a low-grade deliverance made in Canada. It's about four businessmen who go out on the uh, camping and they get stalked by these uh, hillbillies. Guys. Yeah, hillbillies, basically. Except it's in Canada, so it's not the deep south. But anyway, it's interesting. Uh, I know uh, Quentin Tarantino has referenced this movie before Rituals, and I uh, I had seen it on VHS tape way back in the day in the 80s when it uh, when it was at our local video store, and recently rewatched it, and it's uh, it's not bad of its type. Uh, huh. it, you could not you could do worse. But um, so you're yeah. You're a little lost in the woods, eh? <laughs> <laughs> hey, boy. <laughs> you got a pretty mouth, eh? <laughs> you got a pretty mo- mouth. <laughs> pretty mouth. <laughs> I always think of that South Park thing where there's some kind of minister of Canada and he's like, look, we've apologized time and time again for Brian Adams. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I recently rewatched uh, Pandemonium, that uh, horror movie parody from 1981 and uh, boy, or 82, I think it is. And boy, I laughed so hard because uh, the main uh, the the, uh, the the police force is out. They 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 uh, they don't have enough staff to solve these uh, murders that are going on, and so they hire a Canadian Mountie to uh, to solve the, the murders. He's played by Tommy Smothers, and every time he says about, he goes about. <laughs> it's, it's like about. Yeah, I watched. Uh... So there's Tommy and then there's Dick Smothers? Yes, yeah, Tommy's the yet another the great name. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we're, yes. just, we're just full of them on this episode. I think yeah. I sat behind Dick Smothers when I watched Donnie Brasco in Sarasota. Really? Well, I know I did. 
I mean, it, it, we do it the second he walked in. I was like, is that one of the Smothers Brothers? <laughs> yeah, so apparently he lives in Sarasota area with his wife. I mean, it's a retired, you know, it's a place you go to retire if you want to live in Florida. So. Yes, that's true. Nice and warm for the old folks, so or older folks. No, yeah. not, not Donnie Brasco. Danny Collins. Sorry, Danny Collins. Did I say oh, Donnie yeah. Brasco? I, I meant Danny uh, Collins. Yeah, I think you may have, but yeah, that's uh, yeah, okay. That, good, that, yeah, that's more recent. So yeah, good, sure. Good double feature. Donnie, Donnie Brasco, Danny Collins. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll uh, we'll make it a, a triple feature. Let's throw in the Phil Spector movie that he did as well. So Spe- yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of Phil, Sp- yeah, Phil Spector has passed since the last time we. Uh, I wonder how many people looked up that movie after he died. It's not very good. I mean, it's fine, Mm -hmm. the movie. Pacino, I think Mamet let him kind of depend upon a lot of his tics. Yes, yes. It would have been nice if Mamet might have directed him. But there are Mm -hmm. moments in that movie where Pacino, there's a moment where he's scribbling at at the defense table. And just the physicality of it, he, he kind of disappears. It, it's like you recognize that moment as a moment where he truly found that character. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there are fleeting moments like that where I, where I recognize that in his performance. He just requires a director, you know. Yes, agreed. Yeah, I, uh, I thought about going back and rewatching that because I don't remember a whole lot about it. And I thought uh, maybe I would enjoy it more. It's you know, interesting, dark- but it is on the side of Spectre being innocent. Yeah, yeah. It, I, I remember that. I remember that definitely being an, an element there. It is kind of kind of interesting. Yeah, I um, I don't know. There's a lot of evidence to the contrary. So I yeah, <laughs> I don't necessarily testimony. yeah, but Mamet really believes it. I mean, yeah, I think it would be fine to present something as a either or, but uh, mm-hmm. he's really sure. on the side of the uh, defense. And you know what's also the best thing about the movie is Helen Mirren, and she was brought in. Uh, just a couple of days before, because Bette Mittler backed out. And mm-hmm. so they called Helen Murin and said, hey, we got this part for you, acting opposite Al Pacino. It starts Monday. <laughs> <laughs> and she's like, I'll do it. I'll work with Pacino. Sure. Yeah. Sign me up. Absolutely. Well, anyway, uh, we're speaking about the um, the Twilight Time titles, uh, the two titles that they issued in the month of January. They after a, uh, a, a hiatus of about a year and a half, The Man from Hong Kong, 1975, also known as The Dragon Flies. Now, this is uh, notable. It's it's uh, you know it's all obviously uh, one of the uh, kung fu films that was released in the wake of uh, Enter the Dragon. But it is notable for one thing. It uh, includes the song uh, Sky High, which was hit by Jigsaw on the pop charts in America. And it, it was in this film, actually. Before it became a hit, you blowed it all sky high. Oh. <laughs> I'm sure you remember that one. I think so. Um, yeah, it was a huge, huge hit. Anyway, Venom from 1971 is the other title that they've issued. And I think those have uh, audio commentaries. But um, anyway, we'll move on to January 19th. We're moving along here. Uh, not too many more to go over. We have They Live and Prince of Darkness. Speaking of John Carpenter, both of these have been issued in 4K uh, from it's the only notable catalog title from Scream and Shout Factory, but those have been issued with new 4K transfers. I think all of the uh, 
previous extras have been included. Yeah. I, I like that commentary that Carpenter does with one of the co-stars. I don't remember the co-star's name, but I did listen to the commentary recently on mm-hmm. Prince of Darkness. Um, I kind of dig that movie. Yeah, it, it has its moments. I know we saw the church, right, when we mm-hmm. were out there. Sure yeah, and I don't did. know. Yeah, and you could see the church, and you could see like the areas where maybe Alice Cooper stood uh, as the you know the possessed bum, and uh, I don't know if they shot inside that church. Yeah, I wonder if that was a soundstage or it was actually the uh, the church. I would be curious. Hmm. Yeah, that would be. Uh, I saw that in the theater uh, opening weekend, from what I remember. I sure did. I remember going out because I was a big John Carpenter guy about the time that movie came out. Just about saw everything he did. In yeah, and you think about that Simon and Simon guy, Jameson. What's his name? Uh, the, the lead in Prince of Darkness. Oh God, who was the lead in that? I can't. <laughs> I'm drawing I actually, a blank. I actually wrote him. Um, uh, an interesting uh couple of movies that he did. Peter Jameson. Pete. No, 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 no. Jameson Parker. Jameson Parker. I was getting ready to say that. So he, he he's in the uh, he's in Prince of Darkness. He also worked with Fuller, Sam Fuller mm-hmm. on White Dog. Oh, curious. He wow. and Christy McNichol starred in that, right? Mm-hmm. So I yes. sent, sent him a request. I'm looking at it. It was it was 2017. He wrote back this long. He said, you know, I, I I'm not going to do your show, but here's a long chapter on my experience doing white dog and uh yeah so i've got this like mini book uh that i never really read (laughs) yeah in night and here's one sentence that he wrote me i don't know what this is in 1979 gene seberg's beautiful body hidden under a blanket and partially decomposed was found in the back seat of her car in paris's 16th district there, uh, I don't. Why is he telling me this? I, I have no idea. Hmm. Hmm. I. So this is a long story that he sent me. Yeah. How does that tie in? <laughs> Ooh, I don't know. I about guess it that. has something to do with the inspiration for White Dog. Hmm. Uh, apparently, Fuller and his and apparently Gene Seberg and her husband at the time. We're driving home one night on Mulholland Drive, and Gary hit a German Shepherd. They took the dog back to their house, got a vet, and cared for it. Uh, so that was part of the inspiration for it. Okay. All right. Well, that went nowhere. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting, if nothing else. Well, hmm. Yeah, I uh, I saw a white dog again not too long ago, actually, about probably within the last year and a half or something. That's uh, that's that's an interesting entry from Fuller. I'll give you that. But uh, yeah, well, we have another Arrow video release for January, released on January nineteenth, Joint Security Area, which is directed by Park Chan Wook. It's one of his films from two thousand. <coughs> Yeah. And um, anyway, this has a new transfer, uh, lots of new extras, that as they are usually are prone to do with the Arrow releases. They've uh, they've done a pretty good job with this. It's a 
it's been poorly represented for uh, the this as, it, films as far as films in the catalog of Park Chan Wook go. This is a film that's been kind of under underrepresented. <clears throat> um, Richard Kelly's follow-up to Donnie Darko, The Southland Tales, mm-hmm. uh, has been issued in a new edition by Arrow as well, and this has two different cuts of the film, uh, his preferred director's cut and the original theatrical cut. I know there are some fans of this film, and then there are some detractors as well. I'm kind of in the middle on it. I neither hated nor loved it, um, but uh, I'm not a huge fan of Donnie Darko either, so... Uh, I just never went gaga over it like so many people seem to do. But, you know, I, I admire what it was trying to do, but just never really connected with it in a way. I read that. I read, that uh, I read an oral history of it. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen the movie, but, uh, man, that uh, reception it got, wherever it played, was it a Cannes or Venice? Or, it premiered somewhere. Yeah. And that, and that festival audience apparently really hated it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the press on it was just stained from that point forward. Whew. Well, you never know about these things. Well, anyway, uh, for anybody who's a fan of uh, of his follow-up film, film The Southland Tales, uh, Arrow Video has... And I will say that like seven years ago when I went to L.A., I did attend a Q&A screening. It was a screening of David Lynch's Lost Highway. Mm-hmm. And afterwards, this was in the Arclight Dome. Afterwards, Richard Kelly held a Q&A about it. Um, really? And he, it was the least insightful commentary I think I've ever heard on a movie. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, that's interesting. <laughs> take, take it for whatever it's worth. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Indeed, we will. Well, that's good. Well, uh, Criterion has continued their what they've been doing. Thankfully, they're doing physical releases of these films that are going straight to Netflix, the more celebrated ones, anyway, more high-profile titles. And they've uh, they've issued the Rolling Thunder Review, the documentary from Martin Scorsese about the 1975 tour that Bob Dylan did, uh, where he brought a lot of um, notables with him along on his tour. Mm. in that time and uh i haven't i still have a copy of this a review copy of this uh from when it was originally released the uh, netflix sent us one because they wanted us to vote on it and never got around to watching it then and i still haven't seen it so i can't really give an opinion on it yeah i haven't watched it either i did watch uh i did watch the pretend it's a city the kind of the mini series he did with oh what's her name fran lebowitz yeah yeah, okay. That. And apparently he's doing – what's the other thing he's doing, like a Second City or documentary or – Yeah, yeah, he's doing one on – yes, he's doing one on SC, a Second City, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's uh, that should be that should be interesting. Yeah, he pumps out those documentaries. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I guess he can uh, – he's getting that done, if nothing else. But yeah, so what was your takeaway on the friend Lebowitz? Uh, did you enjoy – because I'm hearing good things. Yeah, I enjoyed it. I watched like a couple of, uh, you know, a couple of episodes at a time because she tends yeah. to be uh, smaller doses kind of present. Uh-huh, sure. <laughs> yes, but I like her. And it's mostly, I mean, it's about the city. It's mm-hmm. about the, all the things that aggravate you slash make you fall in love with the city. Mm-hmm. Yeah, somebody said, I, I read somewhere that they did a, a parody 
of uh, that documentary on Saturday Night Live last night. I thought, boy, they've <laughs> they've uh, they've really changed their tune over there at Saturday Night Live. If they're yeah. getting to the point where they're doing uh, parodies <laughs> of documentaries on Fran Lebowitz, but okay. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's quite the specialized audience. I was going to say that's a that's a pretty small audience. Well, anyway, so we'll move on to a couple more titles here. Afterglow and Ray meets Helen from 1997 and 2017. I don't know why these are connected. Uh, Afterglow, of course, was a, I think Julie Christie. It's an Oscar. Alan nominee. Rudolph, yeah. Yeah, Alan Rudolph and Ray and Helen. I'm not sure what the connection. I don't. I don't think that's an Alan Rudolph film. But anyway, these have been both released by MBD Visual. Uh, as a double feature. Yeah, I'd say Alan Rudolph. Oh, okay. I, I missed that. All right. And the big news about um, Afterglow was that was the return of Julie Christie, right? Uh, yes. Uh, I remember they made the big deal about that in the press, and I think Nick Nolte is your co-star. And Ray Meets Helen is uh, Keith Carradine and Sandra Locke. Really? Yeah. Sandra Locke, 2007, because she died not long after that. Yeah, 2017 it was made. Wow. That might have been her last. It work. has to be, yeah. I may have to go look that up. Uh, she died in 2018, November. Yes, yes. Well, uh, yeah, I just recently got a uh, a copy of uh, Remember My Name. Speaking of Alan Rudolph, that's one I have not have never seen of his. I haven't uh, seen the L.A. movie he did. What's it called? Welcome, Welcome to, to L.A.? L.A.? Yeah. yeah. Uh, I hear it's not really all that good, although it's... If you if you are an LA centric person like we are, uh, you may enjoy it more than the average person. But I've always heard it wasn't really all that great. Yeah, I don't know that I like anything by him that I've seen. And yet he he's you know the pro- protege of Altman. I mean he worked with Altman yes. for many years. I know Choose Me is a movie that yes. gets a lot of respect. Yeah. With Jean Bujold, and I think that has music by Teddy Pendergrass. Mm. Uh, yeah, I think he has. A, he did the title song or something, because, and I know the reason for this is because uh, Shep Gordon, the uh, super agent, the agent of uh, uh, Alice Cooper and uh, Teddy Pendergrass and uh, Anne Murray, what a diverse clientele he had. <laughs> but anyway, uh, he also got into the movie business, and so that was one of his. Uh, he financed that film, and I think that's why Teddy Pendergrass contributed the uh, the song in it because that was one of his clients hmm. <laughs> yeah anyway uh so we'll move along to january 26th getting getting closer to the end here uh we have after the thin man these couple of warner archive titles i'll, I'll give you uh, after the thin man uh the second in the thin man series starring william powell and myrna loy and uh, jimmy stewart was in the uh, supporting cast on this one and uh, we have some extras here. Uh, Robert Benchley comedy short, How to Be a Detective, a classic cartoon, The Early Bird and the Worm, and a radio show with Powell and Loy. And Leo is on the air, radio promo, a theatrical trailer. So after the Thin Man, Warner Archive, The Pajama Game, choreographed by Bob Fosse and directed by Stanley Donan. Directed by, actually, George Abbott and Stanley Donan. Um, this one is pretty well regarded i think although uh one of my uh, colleagues got his review copy and said he thought it was one of the lesser films of stanley donan i said well is it is it worse than saturn three that's what i want to know but um <laughs> anyway it's a whole other story but uh you know this is basically a musical about a uh a uh, labor strike at a 
pajama factory <laughs> and uh you know i think it has this i think the big song that was a hit from it was hey there you with the stars in your eyes and oh, all yeah. that the doors day Love anyway never made a fool of you come on Adam, that's sing with me <laughs> i don't remember the lyrics i know the tune but Still i don't do it yeah, I just remember, hey there, you with the stars in your eyes, and beyond that, I don't remember the rest of it. But um, anyway, uh, there are some special features here. A deleted song called The Man Who Invented Love and the theatrical trailer. And then we also have Good News, which is a uh, MGM Technicolor musical starring June Allison and Peter Lawford from 1947. And uh, this has a deleted musical number, uh, an Easter, uh, I'm sorry, an easier way, excerpts from Good News, 1930, the original version, Good News and the Varsity Drag, MGM radio promo with June Allison, and a theatrical trailer. So this was at the height of the MGM musical craze. Hmm. And uh, it's, like I said, in Technicolor and uh, uh, directed by Charles Walters. But that's another Warner Archive release. And then the final one of the month of January would be Room for One More, starring Cary Grant and Betsy Drake. It's about a couple arguing over, they already have uh, three kids, and they're arguing about whether they want to have another one, but it's a comedy. And this features a classic cartoons, Operation Rabbit, and Feed the Kitty as extras, and a theatrical trailer that's from, as I said, 1952. And, uh, and then we have a Buster Keaton collection, one more Kino. This is two more, this is volume four. And uh, this has two more of his films, silent films, Go West and College, new, all new 4K restorations on both of those titles. Okay. And then we have uh, another title from Corinth Films, this one from 2010. This is a DVD only. Beautiful Darling, The Life and Times of Candy Darling, Andy Warhol Superstar. Good. Worth watching. Yes. I mean, uh, you can watch the whole thing on YouTube, but it's, it's you know significantly lesser quality than you'd get from a Blu-ray. But um, directed by uh, Jeremiah Newton, who I have interviewed at length about Krista Helm, because mm. it was the same period of time where um, Krista was uh, hanging out with all the Warhol crowd, including Candy Darling and Viva and all these kinds of people. And Jeremiah was right in there. He was He actually took control of Candy Darling's estate after she died. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, she died of lymphoma in the early 70s and uh, was the inspiration for the Lou Reed song, Walk on the Wild Side. Yeah. That's worth noting. Very young. Yes. Uh, interestingly enough, one of the interview subjects in the film is Fran Lebowitz. Haha. We get yeah. right back to that. Yeah. And uh, we have uh, John Waters, of course, and their voices. Uh, Chloe Svegny is the voice of Candy Darling, and we have uh, Patton Oswald as an additional voice in the film. So, you know, pretty good pedig- pedigree of talent there. I mean, it's so a good, any- it's a good documentary and a portrait of a much different time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'm going to revisit it. It's been a long time since I got around to that. The Court Jester from 1956 stars Danny Kaye, uh, considered to be considered to be one of the greatest comedies of all time. I must admit that I I had never seen it. Put on my review copy of it and couldn't get through, couldn't get past the first 40 minutes of it. I didn't laugh once. So I don't know. Uh, I know it has fans, but I'm not among them. And maybe it got better after that. I don't know. But uh, just just didn't do it for me. Um, but anyway, it's about a uh, you know Danny Kay is the court jester of the film's title, and he's it's about mixed up identities, and he's trying to infiltrate the uh, he's posing as this court jester to make sure that the rightful heir to the throne uh, 
is is in, installed or whatever, and it's uh, I don't know, it just didn't do it for me. But anyway, the court jester, if you're a fan uh, of the work of Danny Kaye or this film, it has been it does look great. I will say that the transfer is spectacular, and it has been restore, uh, restored restored uh, with a 6K 6K what? Uh, transfer. <laughs> yes, that's what it says on the back of the case here, the 6K transfer. So we're up to 6K now, I guess. Yeah, anyway, we, we was... reserve it for the court gesture. <laughs> yes. Well, uh, you know, it's four stars this film, uh, three and a half stars this film gets in the uh, Leonard Malton book, or maybe it's four stars. I don't know. But anyway, it's it's up there. But, man, I, I don't understand it. But uh, anyway, yeah, and there is a featurette with uh, Leonard Malton talking about it, and uh, it's shot in Vista Vision, so like I said, it does look great, but. And if you're a fan, uh, you won't be disappointed. The Gamma box sets that came out earlier from Aero Video, they sold out quickly because they were limited editions, and they reissued these in two different box sets. Now they have one that covers the years 1965 to 1980 and another one that covers 1995 to 2006. So if you're a fan of the adventures of the giant flying turtle uh, from Toho Studios, well, there you go. Hmm. And uh, <laughs> Fate to Black from 1980 – has been issued by Fun City Editions, or I believe it's Vinegar Syndrome actually has put this out. Uh, I think it was previously announced, but they got a little behind, and uh, it is finally. This is an, an interesting film. Uh, this has um, uh, oh Dennis Christopher, who was in. He's in one of those. Uh, I think he's in uh, Django Unchained. Mm-hmm. I think he is. Mm-hmm. And, uh, anyway, he plays a lonely movie buff who. Uh, Basically kills all of his uh, the the people in his life who are giving him trouble by reenacting the uh, death scenes from his favorite horror films, mm-hmm. and that's uh it's it's an interesting little movie. It has a and his girlfriend even uh, looks like Marilyn Monroe, so he's just really obsessed with movies and to the point where his the lines between reality and fantasy are incredibly blurred. Wasn't he uh, in Breaking Away? He was. It's a terrific movie. Yeah. Yes, love Breaking Away. Uh, for sure. So I think I've seen Fade to Black. Yeah, it's worth seeing if remember. you haven't. Yes, I, I would say for sure it is definitely worth seeing. And um, I think uh, we may have one more title here. Yeah, Tales of the Uncanny. Uh, that's the final title for this one. This was released on the uh, the twenty sixth. This is from Severin Films, and it's one of these uh, horror anthology films. And this one, uh, uh, it's a British film. It stars, um, I'm trying to find out who, I lost my connection here. We got to, no, actually, this is a, it's not a British film, uh, and I'm not really sure who these actors are. (laughs) Asham Aluwalia and Chris Alexander star in this film. But it's an anthology horror film from 2020. Uh, I was thinking of something from the uh, 70s that I have it confused with. My apologies. But anyway, Severin Films has issued Tales of the It's a documentary. Is it really? It's a documentary focusing solely on horror anthologies. It's a documentary it about anthologies. I see it now, yes. You know. Inter- David Gregory. Okay, I do want to see that then. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> now I'm it, interested in it's that. It's all about, it's all done through Zoom. Really? A slew of folks features interviews with a slew of folks who work in the industry together on Zoom calls. Well, I was having trouble getting my con- my connection ran out here, and I couldn't get the details on, so I'm glad you were able to correct me on that. So 
from silent era to present day. Interesting. Well, I'm a big fan of the horror anthology film, I must admit. So that sounds like that would be, uh, that's definitely something I'm interested in. Well, I hear it's uncanny. (laughs) Well, yes. Well, that about wraps it up for the January Blu-ray releases. January 2021, we're into the first month down in the new calendar year. Okay, good times. Yes. Yes, yes, indeed. Maybe one of these days the movie theaters will reopen. Maybe some year. (laughs) We'll see. I don't know. Doesn't it make you a little wistful and sad when you see the uh, the new Beverly posting their marquees on Twitter from uh, previous years? It's it's like on our marquee this year, uh, this day, and such and such year. And it's like that makes me really sad when I see those. Yeah, but. Something like the new Beverly staying open. Oh, they'll stay open. Yeah, means stay more open. to me than my local megaplex. Actually. I agree. I agree. If I ever got lost, wherever I'd be, you'd be the first to come. For me, if I were afraid, you'd know what to say, and the feeling would go away. You forgive and forget my making mistakes, pick up the pieces of something breaks. I can get along when life is a fair, knowing at the end of the day, you're there. to me, it matters to you. 